Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. criminal justice reform an issue affecting human dignity? Absolutely, according to my guest on this episode of Humanize. Lawyer Pat Nolan is Director Emeritus of the American Conservative Union Foundation's Nolan Center for Justice. Launched in 2014, the center informs and mobilizes public support for criminal justice reforms based on conservative principles and works with government officials to effectively implement those reforms. Nolan is one of the nation's most influential voices on criminal justice reform. He is a leader of the Right on Crime Project, a national movement of conservative leaders supporting sensible and proven reforms to our criminal justice system, policies that will contain prison costs while keeping the public safe. Previously, he served for 15 years in the California State Assembly, four of those as the Assembly Republican leader. He was a leader on crime issues at that time, particularly on behalf of victims' rights, and was one of the original sponsors of the Victims' Bill of Rights, Proposition 15, and was awarded the Victims' Advocate Award by parents of murdered children. Nolan was targeted for prosecution for a campaign contribution he accepted, which turned out to be part of an FBI sting. He pleaded guilty to one count of racketeering and served 29 months in federal custody. That event changed his life and some of his attitudes. Before entering prison, a friend told him that, quote, For centuries, Christians have left their day-to-day world, humbled themselves, done menial labor, prayed, and studied their faith. We call that a monastery. View this time as your monastic experience, close quote. Pat credits this friend with helping him enter prison in a frame of mind which allowed him to put the time to good use. Nolan is the author of When Prisoners Return, which describes the important role of the church in helping prisoners get back on their feet after they are released. He is a frequent expert witness at congressional hearings on important issues such as prison work programs, juvenile justice, prison safety, offender reintegration, and religious freedom. He has lectured at many judicial conferences and legal conventions. His opinion pieces have appeared in numerous periodicals, including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the National Law Journal, National Review Online, and the Washington Times. He is a frequent guest on television and radio shows, including Fox News, Religion and Ethics, News Weekly, Michael Reagan, and Sean Hannity. Pat, welcome to Humanize. Thank you, Wes. It's, I've been looking forward to this. 
I've known you for some time, and one of the things that I find very interesting is that you were the Republican leader in the Californian Assembly, and at that time, and I'm from California, I remember you were a very tough law and order guy, and I was wondering what got you decided to be interested in politics in the first place? Yeah, I came from a good family where faith was central to our lives, Um, and uh, we were also told that part of our duty was to um, help improve the community, to be involved um, in uh, political affairs. Uh, my mom told us, uh, you know, that in high school, her civics teacher had held up the U.S. Constitution and the Bible and said, these are two documents. You have to understand both to understand the role of government in our lives and your role in the community. And uh, that, that really stuck with me. And uh, so I was really concerned about a lot that was going on in the state, high taxes, inefficient government, high crime. And uh, the assembly seat that, that I lived in opened. I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And, and it worked. You got yeah. elected and uh, rose through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why, why did you take on criminal justice, particularly victims' rights, at the time um, when you were in the assembly? Well, um, I grew up on Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A., and um, it was a neighborhood in severe decline. Uh, it still is. <laughs> uh, and um, crime was rampant. Uh, everybody in my family had been a victim of uh, one crime or another. Uh, Buck Baker, who lived a few doors down, was a uh, shotgun coming out of uh, early morning mass. Um, uh, my wow. brother worked at Wright's Drug Store and came back from a delivery to find them tied up and gagged. Uh, they'd been uh, you know, hit by druggies to steal narcotics. Pretty fun 11-year-old kid to then be called as a witness. Trial and it affected our whole family. So uh, I saw the deep wounds that crime had caused, and I was eager to try to make our community safer. That's very interesting. And um, in your the course of your life, uh, you've had various <laughs> uh, experiences which have affected your thinking. Let's put it that way. Uh, one of the things when I was researching your work that struck me is that you describe criminal reform, criminal justice reform as a human dignity issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of people wouldn't think of it that way. Why, why do you, why do well, you consider um, that? First of all, we tend to define crime as lawbreaking. Um, I think it's better, a uh, better way to view it is victim harming and uh, human di- dignity of the victim and the offender are involved. Uh, by committing the crime, uh, it's not just breaking a law, it's violating God's law. When Cain killed Abel, there was no statute against murder, but it broke God's heart. You know, that's, in my opinion, the definition of sin. He, you know, he killed another human being that God had created with love in his image. And in doing that, uh, had sinned. Uh, and I think morality is at the center of it. But once an offender has been apprehended and given appropriate sanction, um, the way we treat them inside prison will impact a lot 
uh, how they, uh, what kind of neighbors they'll be when they get out. As Chuck Colson said, you can't treat people like animals for years and expect them to be good neighbors when they get out. On one hand, you're talking about uh, using Cain and Abel, but you're talking in, in a broader sense that when people have broken the law seriously in terms of crime, there should be a consequence. At the same time, you're saying that in the context of that consequence, we have to understand that these are people who are of uh, inherent equal moral that's worth to every other right. human being. Would that be right? And that's the power of the gospel in prison. Because the whole prison system tells them they're worthless. When I was in prison over two years, I heard, you ain't got nothing coming, sent, said hundreds of times. And it's said with... Uh, you, you're despised. You're worthless. You come from nothing. You are nothing. You will be nothing. And I came from a good family, so I was able to uh, survive that as tough as it was to be treated that way. But to a lot of these kids who come from broken homes that never had an adult who was admirable and could guide them, that's terribly um, uh, demeaning and uh, harms them. Whatever they've done wrong, they still are a human being. They still have that divine spark. And when Christians go into prison, we offer them hope that no matter what they've done, Jesus has already paid the price for their sin. And all they have to do is get straight with him, accept him and live according to his laws, and they can lead a good, productive life. That, you know, we don't throw them on the ash heap of life. God doesn't do that, and, and we should. Now, that doesn't mean we're stupid. Uh, you know, if somebody still poses danger, if they still are full of anger and hatred, and they've never expected uh, uh, expressed remorse, yeah, that, that guy still needs to be watched. But for others, there are lots of cases of people who have gone to prison for horrible crimes he came out and did wonderful service in the community. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, let me let me pose a question. Uh, recently, uh, the California Parole Board wanted to mm -hmm. release Sirhan Sirhan, the assassin of uh, Robert F. Kennedy, and uh, Governor Newsom uh, decided not to do that. But it struck me that even if Sirhan Sirhan uh, had become a model prisoner or, or was completely rehabilitated and uh, posed no threat to society in, in any regard, and even if he could perhaps do some good outside, that his crime was so atrocious and uh, so such an attack in, on the system of democracy itself that it seems to me if he's a saint, he could be a saint in prison. Uh, don't you think there's a place for that, a certain amount of some crimes are just beyond not rehabilitation and certainly not and certainly not beyond treating a person with dignity but some things are so important and so oh, atrocious I, I that somebody should never uh, be released you know released. there are crimes uh, and as you say uh, that crime uh, literally changed the course of our history and our government um, uh, you know an interesting comment though i was at the ambassador hotel that night, and two of my friends are the ones that wrestled um, Sirhan Sirhan to the ground. Jess Unra 
and Rosie Greer. Okay, uh, they broke his wow. thumb grabbing the gun. Right. An interesting thing. I went to the um, fountain in the uh, foyer to the ballroom there at the ambassador, and outside were hundreds of people on their knees saying the rosary. It was a very moving moment. That moment of tragedy, they were in prayer that Robert Kennedy's life would be saved by the doctors. God was at the center of both parties. He no longer is. They pushed him out. Um, but back to Sir Hen, yes, there are crimes for which no one should be released. I'll tell you, though, <laughs> Newsom didn't do it on the moral side of things. He did it for politics. You know, he didn't want the backlash from him. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that's his authority, and he exercised it. Uh, but there are people that are heinous things. Uh, the, the, there's a guy that was the boss of the yard up in Walla Walla, one of the toughest prisons in the U.S., in Washington State. And a guard had been murdered there. And in punishment, the uh, prison locked all of the prisoners down, not just the involved, everybody down. And for six weeks, they were in solitary confinement. The only water they had to drink was from their toilets. Uh, they brought one sack of green bologna sandwiches a day, and they were allowed a shower once a week when the cell doors were open and they had to run a gauntlet, the guards beating them as they ran through the shower and back to their cell. If they slipped, the guards beat them even more. And in fact, one uh, young inmate was sodomized with the baton. Uh, this was horrible. And word got out. A chaplain took a little tape. One of the inmates had taped while this gauntlet run was happening. And he gave it to a radio station. Chuck Colson heard about it. And he said, I want to go out and visit Walla Walla. And uh, he met. And the, and the authorities said, no, no, it's not too dangerous. He said, no, I had promised to come out and do a Bible study. And I'm going to do it. And he went inside. Uh, of course, they were all very nervous, the guards. And, you know, obviously his life was in danger, but he was willing to do that to take the gospel in. And in the midst of it, uh, you know, uh, the, the boss of the yard, the, the, you know, the, every, every prison yard has a boss, the guy that controls it, a fellow named Don. He said to him, what makes you think we should believe you? And uh, Chuck said, well, uh, what if I go outside and tell the world what I've seen here? And he said to Don, what will you do? He said, well, I'll run your Bible study. <laughs> Chuck said, what makes you think anybody's going to come? And Don said, if I tell them to come, they'll come. <laughs> and he did lead those Bible studies. And Chuck walked outside. The prison, the press was all waiting there. And that's when he said that profound statement. You can't treat people like animals and expect them to be good neighbors when they get out. And that was what he, when he, on the plane home, he turned to his aide, uh, um, Dan Van Ness, and said, we've got to do something. Oh, the press said, 
well, are you going to work with the government to do something? And Chuck said, yes. Of course, he had no idea <laughs> what he would do. So he turned to Dan Van Ness and said, look, we got to keep this promise. You figure out how we're going to get involved in trying to make prisons a safer place and an atmosphere in which people can improve and leave prison better than they go in. And that was the beginning of Justice Fellowship. What is motivating you and motivated Chuck Colson uh, is faith. And secondly, uh, you are very insistent that even though somebody's been imprisoned, there are limitations. I mean, there is a minimal standard of care that people should receive. I mean, they've lost their freedom, but they haven't lost their human dignity. And when you treat somebody um, as less than human, that's how they act. Yes, that's exactly it. Oftentimes, as prisoners are dropped off at the bus station, the guard says to them, see in a few months. Think how defeating that would be. As you, you know, you've cleaned yourself up. You're ready to go home. You're worried about what's going to happen when you get home. And that's what you're told. See in a few months. You know, you have no hope. Which can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. That's absolutely it. And but and let me just take the side of the prisoners, prison guards for a second. They shouldn't say that. I totally agree with that. But you can see where some might become cynical, uh, because they have seen so many people who leave prison and then come back having done uh, equally heinous or worse things, and they they also are under tremendous stress, aren't they? Oh sure, it's a terrible life. Uh, a friend of mine was a warden in Oklahoma for twenty four years, and he said, Pat. <laughs> What kid grows up saying, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a prison guard? <laughs> he said, nobody. Nobody. It's a job we take. It's a job that's necessary, but it's, it's not something you see. However, there are good guards. A little story again, how God showed me all through this, that his hand was on me. When I uh, was getting into the camp, even though it was a labor camp, I had to go through the big house, sprayed with lice, uh, disinfectant, and all my cavities thoroughly searched. And um, they uh, held me there in this little concrete cell, waiting for me to be taken over from the house, uh, prison to the camp. Normally, my counselor would have come to pick me up, but she was off that day, so they sent the guard on rotation. Just you know, by happenstance, he was the one on. As they took me to the barbed wire fences, I had to step through three of those separate fences. And um, he held, the officer held out his hand and said, Hi, Officer Bernal Zami. And I said, Oh, hi, I'm Pat Nolan. Uh. He said, Oh, I know who you are. My prayer group's been praying for you. There were 700 guards in that complex. He's the only one that would have said that. Yet, God's hand was on me saying, you know, we've all watched prison movies. I didn't know it was in store for me. It's okay. I'm with you. I'm guiding you. Bernie was a great guard, and he quit because the other guards said he was uh, consorting with the enemy. He was sympathizing with prisoners, and he was afraid they'd plant drugs or something in his locker to get him locked up too. He had a young baby, and he said, I can't in good conscience risk losing my 
child wow. and that, you know to being imprisoned myself. Yeah, that sounds like a level of corruption that most of us aren't even aware of. There, uh, the <laughs> the Inspector General uh, and then the Associated Press did a study. There are over a hundred Bureau of Prisons. This is just at the federal level, let alone state. One hundred Bureau of Prisons officials that have been convicted of crimes while in office, including rape, murder, and others, and yet they were allowed to continue. Some resigned, but that's the level of corruption. A higher rate of corruption and arrests of those prison officials than all the other Department of Justice uh, sections combined, just in the Bureau of Prisons. That's interesting. Um, it, I, I'm, I'm just kind of pondering what you're discussing. And it seems to me that in addition to prison justice reform in the sense of improving the treatment of prisoners and, and, the, and our method and methods you would propose for rehabilitating them, we'll get into that. How do we improve the sense of the prison guards that they have human dignity? Oh, that, boy, that, that's a pet project. Um, as our volunteers, are, uh, when I was with Prison Fellowship, were let into prison, Oftentimes, the guard resented it because, frankly, the level of alcoholism, spousal abuse, um, broken marriages among guards is very high. And uh, I've advocated they need our ministry, too. That's what I was thinking. They need us to reach out and say, you're a child of God, and the church is here to help you cope. This is a lousy job. And we thank you for doing it. And we want to help it not be so harmful to you and your family. It, it strikes me that if if prison ref, justice, criminal justice reform and prison reform is going to be successful or are going to be successful, that's going to have to be an essential element because all of the, the good policies that you might create can be ruined by guards who feel that they are uh, um, less than human as well. Yes, uh, also, um, uh, they're also sinners. And at the prison I was at, I saw many crimes by the guards. The head of the landscaping, uh, in order to humiliate me, they put me out uh, you know, doing landscaping in all, <laughs> all weather with no rain gear or anything else. And uh, I have to go to the tool shed to get tools. And one day, the two guys that worked there were friends of mine. And uh, they said, you wouldn't believe what just happened. Uh, the, the head of landscaping just came and said, uh, go out in the yard and pick up butts. Well, there, there are lots of prisoners there with not a lot to do. So there are always prisoners out picking up butts. Those two weren't needed, but the, the supervisor needed them to leave the tool shed. When they came back, you know, they they were very neat with the tools. They always made a little outline of the tool so they'd see what was supposed to be there. That day, they'd gotten two new skill saws. When they returned to the shack, the two skill saws were gone. So they were sent out to pick up butts so that the uh, people who did that could steal the saws. The supervisor could steal the saw. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was a prison where... Uh, this report I talked to about the inspector general 
the assistant warden had raped women and had nude pictures of them that he'd taken on his government-issued cell phone. Uh, while I was there, uh, I, this didn't occur while I was there, but just before that, uh, seven guards had been frog-walked from the, the big prison, which was a women's prison, through the gates in handcuffs for raping the inmates. And they, there was a storeroom that had no camera. One of the women complained, and the uh, inspector general installed a camera under the guards that filmed them taking the women in there and bringing them out. Wow. And so they, they were arrested. They were never prosecuted, and they were transferred to other prisons. So there we go again, protecting the uh, institution at the expense of the institution's mission. Yes. We've seen that in the Boy Scouts. We've seen that in the Catholic Church with, uh, with yeah. the sexual predator priests. And now yeah. you're saying that also happens in the prison system. Yes. And uh, because I've been in government, the other prisoners would say to me as they saw this, uh, you know, theft and, uh, and, uh, and criminal behavior, they'd said, and these folks are supposed to be correcting us. Yeah. Is this the Department of Corrections? You know? Uh, one other thing, uh, I was told, because I've been in government, people would look out to tell me, you know, alert me to things that were going on. And they said, watch. And the this is right towards the end of September. October 1st is the new fiscal year in the prison. They said, watch. In the next couple of days, word's going to spread through camp that um, uh, the, the supply room has been left unattended. The guard won't be there. And inmates will stream from around the camp to get new socks and new underwear. <laughs> the reason that's important is, you know, they get this underwear that's been worn by 25 other people. And it's like cheesecloth wow. and socks that have holes in them. So the idea that you can get new skivvies and new socks is something. So guys are running through the camp with stacks of clothes, putting them in their lockers. That afternoon, there was a shakedown. They took all the stuff back. Now, the method in the guards' madness was when they did inventory two days later, all of the stuff that was missing, you know, they log it in, this is there, and the, all the stuff submitting, missing was put down to inmate theft. So they, they'd stolen clothes for themselves, their children, their cousin, their brother-in-law, but it was covered up as inmate theft. And again, the inmates would say to me, huh, you know, who are these people to be in judge over us? Yeah. Well, you can understand that resentment for sure. But that doesn't justify, you know, them doing bad and get out. But they have to be given a moral compass while they're there. And believe it or not, religion is discouraged in prison. That's why you mentioned in the introduction I'm involved in a religious freedom in prisons. They do all they can to prevent people from participating in religious events. Why? Laziness. To let a volunteer in, whether it's a choir from the Oakland Baptist Church or Salvation Army ladies coming in to make videos of people to send to their children, or our volunteers to do Bible studies, it's more work for the guards. But that, but that, make, but that makes life... <laughs> 
better for the inmates, and it also increases the chance that the inmates will be able to uh, turn their attitudes around and have a have a change of life. The convenience of the bureaucracy takes precedence over things that will make the public safer when the inmates are released. They don't want more work. They shirk this. When I got out, I said to the head of prison fellowships field, you know, the ministry, I said, you know, I was amazed at how often they interfered with the ability of volunteers to come in. And he said, oh, Pat, you don't know the half of it. Our volunteers don't think they've earned their stripes until they've driven hours to a prison, waited in the rain or the snow, and then be turned away on some made-up reason. All of our volunteers, that's true across the board. So the prison, the prison officials and the prison guards, you're telling me, not only resent the prisoners and, and may abuse them, obviously not all, we're speaking generally or even partially, but they resent the people who are basically trying to make the prison experience one that benefits the prisoner, which benefits society. Yeah, it's not that they resent it. It's they're lazy. It's more work for them. That's all. You know, it, you know, it's a typical government work program for people that aren't really motivated. It's a lousy job. And so it's easier. Uh, there was a group from the Baptist Church in Oakland come in. They came in every two weeks. I'm a Catholic, but I went to every Christian service there was there. That's the only place there was light in a very dark place that the devil owns. And they came and we were up in the chapel, could see them down there. They were gathered around the guard station and then they walked away and the guard came up and forced us to disband. He said they hadn't been on the visitors list. Well, he was playing computer games on the computer and hadn't run the visitors list. And it was easier for him to continue his computer game and send them home and force us to disband than it was to do his job. You go through this experience, you're in prison for for a couple of years, and you come out, and obviously there was a change in your thinking um, because of how you had been treated and how you had seen your fellow prisoners treated. Tell me about that kind of uh, understanding, that kind of epiphany, if you will, that you may have had that changed your, your approach to these kinds of issues? Yeah. Um, I talked to Chuck about it because uh, I was in with people that had done some bad things. Um, but I looked around and thought a lot of these folks, if they'd had any of the advantages I have, they probably wouldn't be in here. And I said, you know, Chuck, I looked at them and thought, these are my brothers. You know, uh, even though we had not a lot in common. And Chuck, uh, he always was handy with a, a biblical passage. He quoted from First Peter, I forget which verses. For a time, God became lower than the angels. So he would not be ashamed to call us his brothers. God took on the form of us, like us taking on the form of a snake or a spider, so he could identify with us. And if that could happen, I had to do the same for those prisoners there. And Chuck, when he left prison at Maxwell, 
he'd promised uh, the other prisoner, he said, I won't forget you. And he got, uh, when he got out, he didn't go back to practice law because he could have. He hadn't lost his law license. Instead, he founded Prison Fellowship. Chuck Colson, uh, just for listeners who might not uh, remember, was uh, an aide to President Nixon uh, and had a, a really um, reputation as a kind of a hitman for Nixon, where he once said uh, very famously, you know, I'd run over my grandmother to help Richard Nixon, that kind of attitude. He got caught up in Watergate and had a religious conversion, uh, a uh, born-again experience, and I, I never met Chuck Colson. I always wanted to. I, we were supposed to meet once, and then uh, we couldn't. But you could tell just from a distance the difference in his face from before his conversion to after. Before, there was always this kind of pinch look, almost an angry look. Afterward, he had almost a beatific look. Is that how you experienced Chuck Colson? Oh, and, and did you know him, by the way, did, did you know him before his conversion? No, no. Again, I, I won't go into all the details. This is the hand of God that brought us together. The most unlikely circumstances. And yet he sought me out in prison to hire me to come and head up Justice Fellowship. And he, uh, he was like an older brother to me, uh, a mentor in every sense. And absolutely, only friends, the conservative friends in D.C. hated him because he was a mean, angry man and vicious. And when he started prison fellowship, they were all kind of skeptical. But his fidelity um, to the church and the gospel impressed them all. And one by one, they converted. Uh, Lynn Nofziger, you know, who'd been uh, press secretary to Reagan, he'd been uh, in the Nixon White House as political director. Uh, said, uh, and I, Lynn and I were very good friends from the original Reagan campaign on in 66. He said he was a SOB, but he said it literally, and I hated him. And he said, but you know, Christ really changed him, and I admire him for what he's doing. And that's that was true of all my friends. They hated him when he was Nixon's hatchet man. And uh, they came to love him and admire I do have to say he was pretty intense as a boss. The joke among the prison fellowship crew, <laughs> we said, you know, Chuck used to say to roll, run over his grandmother for Nixon. Now he'll run over his grandmother for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was very, very intense. Which kind of points to something that a lot of people um, – are afraid to become Christian because they think it'll change their personalities. And it really doesn't, does it? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> well, it does in some ways. Uh, changes the direction in which the personality is aimed. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Chuck admitted he was fallen like we all are. He once said to me, you know, Pat, I was neither the devil then nor the angel now that people say I am. <laughs> Uh, he was very humble in that regard. How many years did you work with him? Uh, 18. Oh, wow, that's remarkable. What a blessing. Yeah. His uh, office is next to mine. So you became very close and intimate with him in the sense of friends and colleagues. Yes, yeah. 
Let's get into some of the things that you think need to be done because we've only got limited time and, and I've enjoyed talking about your history, but you've got a passion for reform. What are the major issues that you think will promote prisoner dignity and help society at the same time? Uh, I think the most important thing is uh, trying to match an inmate with a mentor on the outside, but to match them while the prisoner is incarcerated so that they can establish a rapport and trust. Now, a lot of programs match them with ex-cons. I don't think that's a good idea. I think finding upstanding members of the community, Christian pillars of the community, active in their faith, and people of substance, and there are many that are willing to do this, who will take them under their arm, prepare them to reenter, and then walk with them as they leave prison, help them make the tough decisions. You know, when a, when a prisoner gets out, where's he going to stay that night? Where's he get his meal? Uh, when I was in, a lot of them had never been to an ATM. They didn't know how to use it. They didn't know how to get a bank account. When, when I went in, you didn't need an ID. You know, you went in to cash your check at your own bank. These kids never had a bank account. And they didn't have AIDS. So the mentor can do those practical things, but also hold them accountable. One of the things the mentors do is work closely with the probation officer. And if the guy isn't showing up for, or gal showing up for work, they'll get on him and say, what's going on? Why are you showing up? You know, this job's important uh, to you. And they hold them accountable in a way a probation officer can't where these mentors work, the probation officers love them because they're like auxiliary probation officers that can have the individual relationship that the caseload of the probation officers is too much. Sam Brownback, as governor, made a commitment that he would try to match every prisoner that wanted one with a mentor. He didn't quite make it, but he matched 5,000 recruited, trained, and matched 5,000 mentors in Kansas. That's a miracle. That's more than all the other mentors in the world behind, uh, you know, combined. And it's that loving Christian who says, whatever you've done, I love you as a brother in Christ. And I'm with you. And when you stumble, I'll be there. But don't mess up, you know. <laughs> I, I've got two questions on that. Um, the first one being... It sounds to me very similar to the sponsor, say, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Would that be a good equivalence? Yes, absolutely. Yep. And secondly, uh, Sam Brownback, by the way, has been on Humanize. He was my first guest. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, he, of course, is deeply involved in religious freedom issues now after his work at the State Department. Um, but are you finding any resistance, particularly perhaps in more prog politically progressive states, because you are your prison reform approach is a specifically faith-based approach? Are 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 there is there resistance, and is there an issue of separation of church and state? Well, uh, number one, yes, there is resistance, um, uh, and and there's resistance in prison, you know. Um, to be a Christian is to be humble, uh, and when you do wrong, you apologize and make amends. 
And in prison, that's viewed as a sissy religion. That's what they call it, a sissy religion. You know, you're not tough. You know, you ask forgiveness. Uh, when you make mistakes, you admit it. Um, and that's very contrary to the prison culture. But within the political groups, there's resentment of Christianity. Uh, they want our volunteers, but they never want them to be able to mention Jesus. That's like saying, we're going to give you uh, a BMW. We're not going to have a drivetrain. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's the essence. And yet they fought us. They fought, the lefty groups fought against the uh, first act that had bipartisan support and Trump signed. They fought against it because it acknowledged the role religious groups can play in changing prisoners. Not that everybody has to be Christian, but let them. But there's also resistance to bureaucracy. There's a rule in many prisons and in still in the federal system called non-fraternization. It says if somebody's been a volunteer with the prisoner inside, they can have no contact with them when they get out. You talk about a stupid policy. You know, you deny the guy or gal the chance to have this friend that helped them stay clean on the outside. Yet the bureaucracy does it. And the only, uh, they, they claim, oh, they're afraid that there'll be scheming and they'll be taken advantage of. We trained all our volunteers to say, look, you're not their doctor, you're not their lawyer, you're not their bank account, you know. <laughs> Uh, but, um, and in all years, we haven't had our volunteers taken advantage of by an inmate, but that's the excuse they use. In reality, they think if there aren't these mentors, there will be more work for probation officers. <laughs> You're kidding? More You're, probation officers hired. That, that, that's very depressing. Uh, let, let's get back to what happened in Kansas, where you did have complete cooperation of the governor and the state, at least during the time when uh, Sam Brownback was governor there. What was the success rate of the program? Um, I've got to check with Sam, but while he was still governor, the recidivism, recidivism rate dropped dramatically of those that had a mentor and stayed in touch with them. One of the problems was some of them dumped their mentors when they got out. <laughs> uh, you, you know, um, they stood between them and freedom <laughs> in their eyes. Uh, but the vast majority of them stay with the program and recidivism dropped. I have to get uh, numbers. That's a very good question. And I ought to follow through on that. Uh, the, the program, though, is purely voluntary, right? I mean, no prisoner is forced to deal with this. Absolutely. No prisoner was forced. So, so they, they would know that the mentor would be part of the issue when they signed up for the program. Yep. And of, and of course, some prisoners are going, are going to say, as we all know, well, gee, this will get me out quicker. I'll sign up and then I'll dump it, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one thing is it didn't let them out quicker. We don't, we don't advocate that. There's nothing cut off their sentence for this. I see. They don't get any brownie points. They're treated like anybody else. But there was a, a, a mentor and mentee that I brought to Washington with Chuck uh, to talk to senators and congressmen, Sam Brownback was in the audience in, uh, of the members. There were five senators and five congressmen having breakfast. And they were fascinated 
it was supposed to be an hour. They spent an hour and 45 minutes with us. And the mentor and mentee, the, uh, the, mentee, the prisoner was uh, a big, handsome black guy. He'd been a running back. Handsome as all get out, strong as an ox. And his mentor was this tiny little man with a handlebar mustache and a bow tie and a fedora. And uh, Mark Souter, who's a congressman from Indiana, said, uh, what if you hadn't been allowed to meet him until after you got out? Because a lot of prisons say, well, they can have a mentor outside, but not inside. And uh, <laughs> the, the inmate said, well, I would have seen this little man with his Quaker rote smile, <laughs> and I would have blown right past him. Because he stood between me and fun, women, drugs, liquor. He said it was only by him coming into the prison. He said for the first several months, they would meet every week. For the first several months, I thought, what's he getting up on? Every adult in his life had always taken advantage of him. And he thought, what's this funny little white guy doing? Why, why is he doing this? And he said after three months, I finally realized he was truthful when he said, I'm here because I love you and I want you to succeed. And that's that love that's so important. Government programs can't love people, only people. Yeah, government programs can't love people, only people can love people. That's a very good point. You brought up the First Step Act, which was signed by President Trump during his uh, administration. What were the, and you were part of that. Uh, process of getting that through. What are the most important elements of the First Step Act that you think are are promoting human dignity of prisoners? First, it says they have a future, and that while they're in prison, they should have programs available to them to help them create a future for themselves. They should have job training, jobs that actually exist. You know cleaning the hallways and doing landscaping while you can get a job doing those as a janitor or a landscaper. There aren't, there's not too much of a demand for that. And besides that, if they try to the business themselves with the record, they have a hard time getting loans. So preparing for jobs that actually exist, trying to link them with employers that are willing to hire somebody with the record uh, to give them uh, programs to help them get their GED. A lot of them never get their GED. And uh, make sure they're literate and uh, numerate. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> one of my friends, uh, as a, a service to the prisoners, would read letters um, from their loved ones because they were illiterate. And he said one time this guy got a letter from his girlfriend, and uh, Jeff started reading said, Put your hands on your over your ears. I don't want you to hear what she's saying. <laughs> but uh, you know, teach. You know, how do you get a job when when you can't read or uh, do numbers? You know, uh, so send them out prepared, but also give them credit, and that's what the Reptiles Act Act does is for credit for religious program. Up until then. You got credit for all these other activities, but anything religious, no, no, no. You didn't get credit for it. You know, drug treatment programs based on the Bible are much more successful than those 
based just on secularism. You know, uh, you mentioned AA before. That's totally based on Christian principles. You know, all the friends of Bill know. Now, he calls it a higher power because he wants to involve religions. But it's totally based on Christian principles of accepting responsibility, asking forgiveness, making amends. And those are the drug programs that are most effective. So giving access to that and then saying if you keep your nose clean and and if you are for a violent or a sexual offense, if you keep your nose clean, we'll give you a little time off your sentence so you can get reestablished back with your family sooner. And it's worked fabulously well. Thousands of prisoners have been released early on the First Step Act. And there have only been a couple of cases where they did some heinous crime after they were released. And, and, and so how has society improved, if it is, if that's even the point, uh, by being more, what shall we say, um, merciful uh, and caring about prisoners? Well, first of all, if they can't get a job when they get out, boy, it's tempting to get back in with the bad crowd. Uh, secondly, um, a lot of prisoners are afraid, those that convert and become Christians, they're afraid they won't be accepted in church. You know, they have a lot of tattoos, they have missing teeth. Uh, and so, again, with mentors, if the mentor invites them to church, prepares the congregation, hey, I'm bringing Joe, who I've been mentoring, he's going to be here. They're welcomed in church rather than being looked at as scant. They're a part of that. Those are healthy activities. John DiUlio said the last two institutions to leave the inner city are liquor stores and the church. <laughs> they're, they're good and evil. Not that liquor is, is terrible, but liquor stores are a place with gambling, prostitution, drugs, uh, alcoholism take place. Churches are places of healthy activity. So if we can get the guys to go into the church and volunteer there, be part of the fabric of that family, it's so much healthier. They're tender shoots that we're replanting in society. Isn't it better they be in the soil of a church rather than a store? So having them in church, having them having a job and paying taxes and supporting their children and wife or girlfriend that's really important. That's a positive for society. So when somebody has a sense of their own dignity, they'll act in that fashion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, not everyone will. But frankly, I'd say they don't have a good sense of dignity. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that somehow we failed them or they failed. But yes, if we can give people a sense of dignity, the fact that they're a child of God and what he wants for them is good and positive. And if they keep the nose clean, they can live a good, healthy, productive life. That's ennobling. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. One of the issues I've seen you address that I don't see many others address uh, is prison rape. Now, often that's, that's a joke made, you know, okay, he's going to go and guess what he's going to get. Um, but you see it completely differently. You see it as a profound problem with regard to uh, treating prisoners in a humane way and in terms of their future. Explain that a bit. Yeah, that's a horrible problem. And for years, prisons denied 
it happened. Uh, but under President Bush, uh, and with the support of uh, Jeff Sessions and Ted Kennedy, we got legislation passed to try to, to set standards to hold the prison accountable for the safety of the prisons from sexual assault. Um, it's said by many uh, social scientists and medical doctors, rape is not a sexual crime. It's about dominance. You're dominating another. And to have someone go into prison and be subjected to repeated risk over and over again, and <laughs> sometimes by the prison officials themselves, there are dozens of examples I can give you, um, think how demeaning that their whole sense of worth shrivels at that. One, one lady, Marilyn Shirley in Texas, uh, she and her husband ran an auto repair shop, and one of the customers said he couldn't pay his bill, and he gave her some cocaine to pay the bill. And she was arrested for that. And uh, when she tried to sell it to get the money, that he, she, he owed her. And she was in prison. The guard called her down to the uh, station, and one of his buddies is a lookout. He grabbed her and threw her against the wall and raped her. And she said she can still smell him. And hear his voice, as he said to her, grabbing the hank of hair and shoving her against the wall as he raped her. And he said, and don't bother to report it, because who are they going to believe? You, a druggy prisoner, or me, a fine upstanding law enforcement person? Fortunately, she saved her sweatpants. They shook down her locker. They figured something was there. But she hid it well, and the day she was released, she went into the assistant warden's office and threw it down. They got the semen was still, they got DNA from it, and the guy got prosecuted and arrested, but only because she'd hidden that evidence. But that's what went on. I think, and, and she still suffers from this. Uh, I just talked to her. Her husband just died, this sweet little lady. She said to him, I'm a grandmother. Why are you doing this to me? But it was poor. He could dominate her. And, uh, and that's true whether it's prisoners raping or staff raping. Uh, the, the estimates are that 10% of prisoners, people held in jails and prisons, are raped every year. 10%. And this is men and, and men especially and women. If they're men and women. Absolutely. And raped by men and women guards. <laughs> so so how, do you, how do you fix that? First of all, you treat it as a crime scene. And it takes leadership. The warden has to say, not on my watch. I will not tolerate rape here. But the problem is a lot of wardens are lazy, and they essentially turn the inside of the prison over to the gangs. And wardens' careers are made and broken if there's a, 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 an escape or a riot. And so... They make deals with the prison gang, the boss of the yard like Don was. They make deals that you let them know if there's an escape plan or a riot going to happen, and you get to run the show. So the, the, the uh, gangs run the inside of the prison. And, and some great people, um, uh, I, I, there's an example. I don't know if we have time for it, but a young kid lit a trash bin on fire. And um, his mother 
took him down and turned him in to be arrested. She had no idea he'd be sent to prison for that. This uh, teenage boy, handsome young boy, as he enters the prison, they're uh, yelling, fresh fish, fresh fish. And the white power gang had made it the black power gang and the guards that he would be put in the black section where he was raped repeatedly for two weeks. And then he was moved to the white power section where his brain was filled with hate, with absolute hate. Oh, so the white, po the white power gang was recruiting him by having him abused by African-American people. Right, right. And his head was, and when he left prison, finally, he took the first black man he came to, tied a chain around him, and dragged him to his death. Oh, that's terrible. The famous case in Texas oh, that everybody really? talked about. Yes. But nobody connected it back to the rapes, but his, his head had been so filled with hate from being so viciously raped and beaten, and then his head filled with this awful hate for black people, that he did that. And that doesn't excuse what he did, but it sure as heck explains why. And how can we have a system that allows that to happen, that tolerates it? Uh, one guy went to the uh, 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 warden to complain about being raped and said, well, the choice is you, fight or F. You choose. What I'm hearing, and, and I'm not conversant with this issue much at all, we need a higher level of professionalism from the people who run the prisons. Yes, especially from wardens. One of the suggestions we have is grade wardens for promotion and increases in pay on the recidivism rate of the inmates that get out. Now, of course, there are different levels of security and, and danger. They can be graded like that. And one of the things we had in the Prison Rape Elimination Act, but which isn't being done, is grade the wardens and invite the three with the have done the best job eliminating prison rape and the three with the worst record, invite them to Congress to testify and explain the first how they were able to cut down on prison rape or eliminate it. And the others explain why they couldn't when these other wardens had. Hold them accountable for it. That's very interesting. Uh, that brings up an interesting issue and an important one. Um, do you believe that the criminal justice system and prisons in particular are systematically racist? No. I think the impact is um, racially divided. Nobody can go into prison. Chuck and I talk about this and see the great number of black and brown people till out of portion. Uh, but I don't think the system itself is racist. I think um, a combination of factors, uh, number one, uh, poor people can't afford attorneys. And I admire the public defenders, but they're overworked terribly, their caseload. They have no money to hire experts to track down witnesses. And uh, oftentimes, the first time they meet their client is when they meet them in court. And the easiest thing to do is cop a plea. And they tell them, oh, this is your only help. Otherwise, you're going to get much longer. Uh, that's terrible. 
Uh, it's a terrible situation. Again, it's not the fault of the public defenders, but we need to boost the public defenders so they have the resources. One of the kids I was in with hadn't been involved in a crime. He had several witnesses that could testify he wasn't even there. It came time. He was in the courtroom. The public defender showed up, and he had looked at the audience, and he said, what, you know, wh where are the witnesses? He said, oh, I haven't had a chance to contact. In frustration, he turned to his mother, who was in the audience, and said, Mom, you got to call them. They got to get down here. He hadn't subpoenaed them anything. She dug through her purse, getting quarters, went out calling them, trying to get them there in time. He got sent up the river. That, talk about an inadequate defense. <laughs> That's a real grounds for appeal there. Well, but, you know, uh, the appellate courts won't uh, say that's inadequate defense. Now I understand. Um, yeah. You're talking about people who are really abused, even though, I mean, we understand that many have done very terrible things, but you're talking about people who are being denied basic justice. And it seems to me that what you're after is to get basic justice into the system, as well as the kind of help and mentoring that, that you were describing before. Yes, I, I agree. And let me make a distinction. We're not part of this woke justice crowd that says, oh, we're going to let murderers. I was going to get to that. You know, the, I saw a picture of a guy with a 70-inch TV taking it out of a store. 70-inch TV. And, of course, he'd had 22 priors. And AOC had said, well, you got to understand these people are poor, and their choice is either steal a loaf of bread or, um, uh, you know, uh, commit a crime. And uh, or start steal, and I said this guy must have an awfully large family because that TV can buy a lot of bread, <laughs> and those other twenty-two thefts he made—that's the type of nonsense. That's not what we're part of. We totally disagree with that. There's the kind of justice reform that you're referring to: the First Step Act, the mentoring, uh, the the laws against prison rape, and so forth treating prisoners with dignity. Then there's the a different approach to prison reform, which is being promoted by the progressive district's attorney, district attorneys that doesn't enforce the law, right. that basically allows uh, certain crimes to go unenforced unless they're committed by police officers. Yes, exactly. Or a businessman or a landlord. And, and, <laughs> and, and that's leading to a tremendous increase in uh, uh, crime in places like New York and Los Angeles and so forth, and a great deal of um, loss of morale for police officers who know, who won't even bother to arrest people anymore because they know they'll soon be out. Uh, you were talking about that, but I wanted to focus a little more, uh, our listeners' th thoughts on the differences between what you're talking about in terms of criminal justice reform and prison reform and the more progressive approach, which seems to basically focus on, on enforcement. The left, and I, I was shocked at the first conference where I heard this, a whole bunch of them want to abolish prisons. Abolish prison. No prison. And these woke DAs believe that. Nobody should go to prison. Now, of course, the people that pay the biggest price 
are the people that live in those neighborhoods that don't have stores with any good things in them, that are afraid of the drug gangs murdering the stray bullets. The neighborhood I grew up in, some of the parents in the old homes on Adams Boulevard put their children to bed wrapped in blankets in the cast iron claw tubs because that'll stop a bullet from going through the house. Not because they're under attack. I can't even imagine oh. living like I can't oh, imagine living like it's that. It's awful. And yet they're those are the people that suffer, but these woke DAs are letting the criminals out. The, these people, the, the woke folks, are trying to destroy our society. We're trying to restore our society and um, and and treating people with dignity. But they don't treat people with dignity. They just wholesale let murderers out. The, the guy that just murdered those two cops in New York was released. It's unbelievable. And they do it in the name of reform. No, they, uh, I'll, uh, a little anecdote for that conference I was talking about, where a lot of the audience was for abolishing prisons. I said, you know, I hate to be a skunk at a lawn party, but, you know, I think we need prisons. I, we overuse them. We send a lot of folks there we're just mad at rather than afraid of. But, and they jumped all over. You would have thought I was the most vicious person. Finally, this black lady in the back raised her hand and said, that's what Mr. Nolan said. She said, I'm a black woman going through menopause. And I get the prickly heat. And these gangsters came and stole the air conditioning from my house. I not only want them caught, I want them sent to prison. <laughs> and that ended the debate. That was a practical voice. These other people are white liberal elites who say they care about purpose, but they're really, they want to destroy our institutions, including prisons, police, others. But that voice of common sense from that victim of a crime was what saved me from being screamed at and thrown out of the meeting. Yeah. The, the um, thing that I've noticed in this conversation is that it's been a really uphill struggle for you uh, and the prison reform folks like Chuck Colson and, and your other organizations um, to to get these approaches and these reforms enacted. And now you have, at the same time, what we just described as the lack of enforcement approach to cr prison reform. Are you afraid that that people's anger over the latter will will prevent you from succeeding in your work? Well, it's certainly making it a lot more difficult. Because, you know, a lot of people don't follow this stuff closely. And all they know is these people claim to be reformers, the woke DAs. And so when they hear criminal justice reform, they say, uh, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, it makes us, we have a harder sell to convince conservatives that this is not the same as that. And in fact, I've said we need to come up with a new name. They've stolen the criminal justice reform. They want criminal justice abolition, but they they fly under the false flag of reform. Uh, but yes, it's made our job tougher. I'll, I'll give you an example. We're all angered by the um, the people, the organized gangs going in and looting high end stores. They all come up in cars. It's all coordinated organized crime. 
the retailers and the DAs want to lower the level which uh, somebody can be charged with a felony. And that sounds good. That sounds tempting. But that'll, that'll catch the guy that is a one-off thief. And we don't want them to go to prison. We want them to stop stealing. But we're talking about organized rings of theft. The DAs already have the authority under organized crime statutes, under conspiracy statutes. They can charge these gangs, and they can go after Mr. Big. But it's easier just to complain and say, well, we'll go after the, 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 uh, the one-off shoplifter. And uh, they need to do their job. And I'm, I'm working on an op-ed right now to say they have the authority. Let's use it. Let's stop these gangs that are pilfering the stores. Let's also regulate the off-market sales because they have to fence all this stuff. They aren't going to pawnbrokers anymore. Let's regulate the people that are selling these things, like the pawnbrokers. Have them register away where it comes from, get an ID from those that, so we can track down the gangs that are fencing this stuff. So it's solvable, but not, in, not if we have a lazy DA that will prosecute. Or well, lazy or ideological. Yes, uh, one or both, yeah. Uh, th- this is an qu- uh, issue that I hear often from political liberals, um, and I think it's, it's something that, a question that needs to be answered. We have more people in prison in the United States than in any other Western country, in fact, in uh, many Western countries combined. What is it about our country, do you think, that leads to such a, a criminal problem and uh, why do we have so many people in prison where other societies don't? And other societies, you know, that imprison fewer people are not experiencing the kind of implosion that we're seeing in these uh, progressive cities. Yes, uh, that's a very good point. Um, some people would have us believe that uh, those statistics are because Americans are just more evil than other peoples in countries around the world. That's not true. It's our loss in our system. We criminalize so many aspects of society. You know, the difference between criminal law and civil law is um, civil law, you get recompense. Criminal law is based on a moral judgment that what they do is so bad that they need to be punished. And we've taken the criminal law and we've criminalized all sorts of things. You know, uh, for years, it was illegal to shoot a rabbit from a streetcar in L.A. <laughs> that hasn't happened in a while. <laughs> yeah. What, what are some of the, uh, the, the issues that are criminalized today that you think we should uh, stop criminalizing? Would one of them be drugs? First of all, I, I make a distinction between drug dealers on the street and the large dealers. The pe- we failed at stopping street sales. It's the people that bring it in across state lines and across international borders to go after. But most of the people prosecuted the guy on the kid on the street, and he's reported within hours of being arrested. You know, they're the small fish. Why are we spending time on them? Uh, you know, we need to go after the the dealers, but that's more work. That's harder. Uh, but things that are criminalized now, there are also there were some uh, lobster in uh, Louisiana. 
that went out and caught lobsters off Costa Rica. The federal prosecutor arrested them, seized their boat, took it away, their livelihood, and charged them with the crime because they had the uh, lobsters in box, not bags, and they were undersized. Now, it wasn't illegal in Costa Rica where they caught them, but he said they were illegal in the U.S. And <laughs> they went to prison, lost their business, did time, and they measured, <laughs> they measured the lobsters when they've been out and drying, and lobsters shrink over time. So there's no evidence that they were really undersized, and whether they're packaged in a cardboard box or a bag is not a big deal. And yet they went to prison for that. Now, fine, if you want to find them, again, I think what they did was wrong, but if you want to find them, okay. But to take their livelihood, their boat, took it from seas and sold to get money for the department that arrested them. They get to keep those assets. Uh, it just makes no sense. You're talking about uh, pre-trial seizures, right? Yeah, asset forfeiture, which is a scam. They did a study in, um, uh, you know, it's, of course, supposed to stop drugs. And outside of Nashville, I think it's I-40, going into town, the drugs are coming in. Going out of town, the cash goes out. The Channel 5 there, the Fox affiliate, posted a crew there and watched and counted. And the uh, stops uh, and seizures going into Nashville were only one-tenth of those going out. So the drugs were flowing in. The poison was flowing into Nashville, but the police spent their time grabbing the cash because they got fast cars that were seized and all that money. Yeah. That's policing for profit. They weren't defending the people of Nashville from drugs. If they had been, it would have been 10 to 1 the coming into Nashville. But they get drugs, they have to destroy them. When they get cash, they get to keep it. So where do they put their manpower? The, the money side. That's, that's how, again, the system scams it. Uh, you know, and uh, I was in prison with a guy, one of his drivers, uh, he worked for, uh, oh, the, the Jelly, Jelly Bellies company. And he had a truckload of um, uh, wastewater. And he apparently was late for a date, and he dumped the water into uh, a waterway there, which was a violation of law. His boss was arrested, charged, and convicted and sent to prison because he should have known that his employee would do that. So you've got a problem of uh, prosecution, prosecutorial overreach as part of our problem in terms of uh, too many people in prison? Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a big part of it. They want to run up the score and claim they got so many convictions. And that's why going after small fry street drug dealers is good because they get a lot of convictions. But going after Mr. Big just gets them one conviction. But the broken windows theory, it seems to me, works. That is, if you take care of quality of life crimes and really enforce against them, that prevents larger crimes. We, we saw that in New York City uh, with Rudy Giuliani and Michael Bloomberg 
proving it worked. And then when they took it off, it, it proved it worked again because everything got bad again. Yeah, but I'm not saying don't arrest the street dealers, but don't send them to prison for 5, 10, 15 years. That's what's filling our prison. These absurdly long sentences. And the fraud is they don't get any drug treatment while they're locked up. When I was in the lecture, I used to say, well, you know, at least they aren't doing drugs in prison. Wrong. There, there were more drugs available in prison than when I was in college, and they came in through the guards' lunch tables. Okay? There were plenty of drugs there, but they get no treatment. Less than 10% of federal prisoners get any kind of treatment for their drug addiction. So we lock them up and send them out still addicted. How has that helped? It's cost the taxpayers a bunch of money for upkeep of these folks. It's destroyed their families and their lives, given them a record forever. For what? To still have an addict on the street trying to feed his habit? We're after volume, not seriousness. Yeah, we're after volume, not seriousness. That's that's interesting. Uh, we also, the little guy doesn't have the ability to turn a dime that the bigger guys do. So sometimes you see the the uh, bosses get less time than the henchmen. That, <laughs> that's, uh, that's an excellent point. That's exactly it. The theory is that they get the little guy and he'll rat up the chain. The problem is, if you rat up the chain, you die. Okay? That's, that's just a fact. You're gone. Okay? They know where you are. They know where you sleep. So instead, they rat down the chain. And they say to him, it's like, well, who else can you give us? And it doesn't matter if it's Mr. Big. It's just another notch on their belt of prosecution. Got it. So we get a bunch of small fry. We haven't, we haven't stopped the flow of drugs by doing that. But we've made the prosecutor look good for the number of convictions, and we've filled our prisons with folks we're mad at, not that we're afraid of, costing us a bundle. We've talked a lot about some of the things you would change about the criminal justice system. What would you not change, if anything? Well, uh, I would really want the speedy trial, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's honored in the breach today. Almost nobody gets a speedy trial. Um, I would uh, have more um, defense available for people who can't afford it. Uh, certainly, if we're going to lock them up, it's a matter of, uh, and today in prison, possibly life, possibly death. <laughs> you know, uh, we owe it to the system. Uh, but um, I also would have jury-informed sentences. Let the juries know what the sentence will be and what the cost of it will be if they sentence them to these long terms. I think most juries would be appalled to think that these ineffective little street dealers are going to go away for 5, 10, or 15 years because the guy above them on the chain ratted them out. And once somebody's going to rat somebody out, they'll testify to anything. You tell me how much drugs were involved because there's certain thresholds to get you longer sentences. I'll tell you whatever you want. They become a trained seal. You know, you toss them a fish and they bark. Uh, Alan Dershowitz says uh, these uh, paid informants not only sing, but compose. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Is there, but is there something in the, in the system that you think 
works that you wouldn't change? Well, you know, for uh, for people like Sirhan Sirhan, uh, for this uh, kid that murdered the students in Michigan, um, yeah, I'd have good, strong prisons for them. Uh, I I wouldn't um, debase them. I would try to um, get them straight with God. Uh, but no, we again, I I got yelled at at that conference because I said we need prisons. And and we do. We just don't need as many, and we don't need as many uh, nonviolent folks locked up. Uh, the myth is that only the bad uh, go to prison. Nobody's in prison for marijuana possession. That's just flat false. <laughs> the way a judge told me, the way that happens, somebody does a crime, let's say robbery, burglary, whatever. While they're out, they get caught with a marijuana cigarette. They're violated on parole and sent them back to prison for the entire time of their sentence. So they fill the prisons, even though they had smoked a little grass. Uh, you know, that's not a good resource. Uh, Steve Baum is now the DA in Hawaii. He was the federal prosecutor there. He was a judge there. I love him. He has Project Hope. And he says, you get caught violating parole. You come and meet. You're arrested. You're brought to me right then. Wherever you are. You're brought to me right then, and I tell you, we take these rules seriously. And so that you start taking them seriously, you're going to jail, but not for weeks or months, 24 hours. Then you're brought back and says, now, you know, we're serious. We take these rules seriously. We don't care if you agree with them, like them. You're going to stay clean. Well, if they do it again, they're held 48 hours. And then a week after that, yeah, they go up the river to the big house. What they found is that there are 69% uh, fewer uh, re-arrests, 69% fewer dirty drug tests, 60% fewer missed appointments with their PO. And of course, they miss because they know they're dirty. About two-thirds reduction in the repeat offenders. Why? Because you have a judge that says, I'm serious about this. But he doesn't send them away for years. He gets their attention, calls them up short, and says, you keep this up, you're going away. And he hasn't had to do that very often, but he did. When folks continued to scoff at the laws, they went away. He wasn't afraid to send them there. It sounds like, and I just we have to close here, but that you're talking about a system that's very personal, that uh, t treats these prisoners as individuals, uh, and that uh, includes mercy along with punishment. That's a difficult uh, road to hoe in terms of being able to go there because so many people look with disdain on people who've committed crimes. Yeah, uh, but you know, one of the few upsides of all the people we've arrested, you know, I think it's like over 100 million Americans have convictions on their record. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a lot. People know, people know people. That they're close to a son, a daughter, dad, a cousin, that's done hard time, you know, and uh, and they know. So th there's a lot more support for these. But you're right; it's more personal. A great judge here in Arizona became pre presiding judge by the hand of God. A great Christian man. He called the entire staff together and said, "From this day forward, we will not no longer process files." 
we will deal just one person at a time. What a great vision. It's not an assembly line moving through. Each person judged and evaluated and sentenced based on them, themselves, and giving them an opportunity then to change what they are. That's uh, in, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. I, it's in Isaiah. Uh, God says, my people will live in peaceful communities and secure homes and tranquil places of rest. That's who wants security, tranquility. That, that's to be yearned for whether one's religious or not. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. He's speaking the human heart and the condition. And our system, we need to work with and try to make it nearer to that vision God has for our community. And if we fall short, that should always be our vision, not a machine that just keeps processing people through. Hmm. What next for Pat Nolan? <laughs> I, I'm going to die with my boots on. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of the things we're working on is, believe it or not, several prison systems still shackle mothers during their pregnancy. That's abominable. It's barbaric. Uh, they don't provide the women with sanitary products. So we're working on legislation to do that. Yeah, we have to, we do, we, we cannot treat people that way. I totally agree with you. Well, Pat, it's been a very interesting, if depressing, <laughs> uh, discussion. Uh, I'd love to talk to you some more about your ideas and uh, what's going forward. And, and thank you very much for being on Human Eyes. Oh, it's terrific. Thank you very much, Wes. Thanks for listening to Human Eyes from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Human Eyes, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.